We are always on the move. No matter what time of day or night, no matter if you're driving, walking, or sleeping, you are always on the move. You see, you are on a big ball called the earth, and it's always moving around the sun. It takes 365 days, 365 and a third days approximately for the earth to make its journey around the sun. We call that journey around the sun a year. And we measure days, weeks, months to add up to one year. And tonight we're standing at that imaginary line called the new year. We look backwards 12 months. That was the old year. We look ahead to the new year. If you are average, you will have about 70 of them. That's not many when you think about it. Because you think, already a year's passed? Gosh, it just started. You'll have about 70 of those experiences in a lifetime. Some may have more, some will have fewer. That's the average lifespan. What is significant about the new year is not that we're just traveling on a big dirt clod in space for 365 and a third days, but we ourselves as people are traveling. We are going somewhere in our lives. That's why we make evaluations at the end of the year. Where have we gone? How far have we gone? What have we done? What will we do? What have we accomplished? And what's great about the new year is that no matter where we have traveled, where we have come from, we have a new slate because the future has not yet been written, no matter what the past has been this year. No matter how bad you've blown it. And in many ways, I've blown it. But that's all behind us. It's fresh, it's new, it's unwritten, it's uncharted. And God has charted it, but as far as we're concerned, it's brand new. And so we evaluate, and we make what we call New Year's resolutions. Beware of them. Because the minute you say, I am going to, you've got a problem. Because your resolution is only as good as you are. And how many resolutions have we broken? Those promises made in January only to have failed in February. Uh, for instance, that diet. Well, I've been good all week. Listen, I didn't eat anything. I need a reward for the diet. Well, what's the reward? Chocolate pie. <laughs> or I'm going to read through the Bible every single day this year. I resolve to do that. That's a great resolution. It's one that, by God's grace, we should all keep. But when we make a resolution, oftentimes we just make the resolution in the power and the energy of our own fortitude, strength, flesh. And that's insufficient. I even noticed a little article in the USA Today, today, about New Year's resolutions. Uh, 
it said, when you compile your New Year's resolutions for 1997, you might take this advice into account. Relying on willpower alone probably means your list will end up in the dumpster. Willpower alone will not allow you to keep a resolution, says Robin Sharma, a Toronto motivational speaker who specializes in personal change. You need a precise action plan. It's like my mother said when I was growing up, failing to plan is planning to fail. Without a plan, making a resolution just because it's New Year's will mean failure for 80% of Americans. Well, it's okay to make a resolve if you make the right resolve, if it's a God-given resolve and you resolve to trust Christ and not your own power, your own strength. If you resolve to surrender, as it will, to the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. That's a good resolution. Lord, I resolve not to trust myself, but I resolve to trust you where my power is so limited and where your power is so unlimited. I think the best word is vision, rather than New Year's resolution, vision. Vision takes into account a God-given plan, a God-given strategy, God-given purpose for the new year. I have my Bible opened up, and I'm going to share a few verses with you out of the book of Nehemiah. It's hardly a communion verse, perhaps, but it is a New Year's verse, and I think it all fits hand in hand. Nehemiah had vision, and I'm not asking you once again to open your Bibles. We've got uh, the lights dim, and you might have to squint to read, and if you want to, you can. But I'm going to read a few verses out of Nehemiah chapter 2. A man who had a vision to build something. Something that was broken down. uh, Something that required an enormous amount of resolve. Something he knew he couldn't do on his own. Something he knew was God's plan for the future of Jerusalem. And something that needed other people, not just him, to pull it off. Uh, It's been said that there's three kinds of people. The kind that make things happen, the kind that watch things happen, and the kind that have no idea what's happening. (laughs) What kind are you? Well, Nehemiah was not the kind to watch things happen. He was not the kind to just have no idea what's happening. He was the kind to make things happen, but he had to make sure that God was in it. And hence, he went to Jerusalem all the way from Persia because he had heard that Jerusalem was in shambles. The walls were broken down. The gates were burned with fire. It touched his heart. He prayed about it. He was motivated to ask the king about it. And he goes all the way from Persia to Jerusalem to look at this project and to get involved, to build the walls that were broken down. How did he do it? Well... He did it with a few things. Number one, he had a vision. And that's always where we begin. Get a vision from God. We'll see that in a moment. Secondly, he shared the vision with others. And thirdly, he built the vision. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 of chapter 2 where it says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I told no one what my God 
had, listen to this, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. What he says is God put something in my heart. That's vision. That's the right resolve. God has put something in my heart, and I'm going to go check it out. We toss the word vision around. The world tosses the word around. It's in periodicals, newspapers, especially this time of the year. Usually it means the power to create a new plan. But oftentimes the way the world uses vision is for selfish reasons. I'm going to build this concept for myself. Usually that's how it is used. Again, in the scripture, it's being able to see a God-given plan and a God-given purpose in a very disorganized or impossible situation. It was said that when Michelangelo was looking for a piece of marble to make his work David, the statue David, that he found a piece of marble that the owner said had no value, that it was worthless. Michelangelo said, I want this rock. The owner said, it has no value. Michelangelo said, it has so much value, for inside is trapped an angel, and I must set it free. He saw what the owner did not see. He had vision to get in there and make something out of it. Well, God can put something in our hearts that's from Him, a vision to do something, to be something, to create something with His power, with His strength. And so God put it in my heart to do something at Jerusalem. The Bible says without vision, the people, what? Perish. Probably that's why we feel so guilty this time of the year. Because we sometimes say, I resolve, I'm going to, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it really isn't a revelation, a vision from God that God has put. We haven't spent time before him asking us asking Him what He wants of us. We just go out and get busy. I think the key this year is to say, Lord, I give you my year. There's 365 and a third days in it. Take it. What do you want? What do you want to see happen in my life? What is your plan and vision for me? You say, well, you know, I've got my year pretty well marked out already. Scrap it. What I mean by that is what James said when he said, Who are we to say, I'm going to go into this city and buy and sell and get gain and do this this next year? When we should say, if the Lord wills, I'll do that, because you don't even know what a day is going to bring forth. Your life is a vapor. So the best thing to do is to bring your plans before God, weigh them carefully, and ask for His vision, His purpose. And say, Lord, I give you the permission to interrupt my life. Not that He needs it because he can do it anyway, and he will. But you might as well just abdicate the whole thing to him. Let him speak to your heart. Put something in my heart. Now, there's a couple ways to do that. A lot of people would ask, well, how do you get vision? A couple of key ways. Number one, evaluate. Evaluate. Uh, Listen to what happens. He gets to Jerusalem He gets on the beast, probably a donkey that he rode, and I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. That's the dung gate in Jerusalem. It's a nicer way to write it. 
and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate. And so I returned. He evaluated. He had heard in Persia that the walls were broken, the gates were burned. And so he now goes out with a few people and he just checks it out. He takes a little ride around and he looks at it. He views it. In fact, the word view here is the a better translation would be examine. It's a medical term. It means to probe a wound to see the extent of the damage. And so before you go out and just say, I'm going to build this year for God, what are you going to build? What needs fixing? What needs work? The key at the end of the year is to make a proper evaluation of our lives to see where the walls have been broken down, where the gates have been burned, what particular areas in my life need the attention. That's how you get the vision from God. You hear and you evaluate. And so he looked out. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Now, he does something else. He doesn't only look at it, evaluate it, find out what needs to happen. Another step in getting vision is to contemplate, is to be quiet, is to think, to meditate upon Scripture, to meditate before God, before just getting out and saying, I am going to do whatever, is to just toss it in prayer up before the Lord a few times until you're settled that this is what to do. Notice, he says, uh, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I went and I looked. I didn't tell a soul. I took a few people, but I didn't really tell anybody, and he doesn't tell anybody until verse 17. Then I said to them. There's a lot to be said for quietness, and I think uh, with every month that passes in my life, quietness is becoming more and more a friend to me. I look for it. I long for it. The time when God would speak to me. If I feel God has put something on my heart, it's vision. Well, I want to evaluate what's going on in my life. Evaluate the circumstances around me. And then just really give it some time. Let it simmer. Talk it over with God and talk it over again with God. In Proverbs chapter 13, the third verse It talks about those who are rash with their lips are those who come to ruin. But whoever guards his lips guards his whole life. And so he didn't say anything. He just contemplated it. And then in verse 17, as I said, he started talking. So that's really the second step. You get a vision and you then share the vision. He didn't share the vision with everybody. He didn't go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Hear ye, hear ye, I'm here to build your city. He took a few select people with him, and then the other people that he shared are enumerated in verse 16, priests, nobles, officials, others, who did the work. And I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer be a reproach. At the right time, 
after evaluating, after contemplating, he then started talking to these guys. He didn't tell everybody, but he got a select group of people around him. That was his network. These are the people who are going to build now. They're going to be his partners. They're the ones that he knows he can pass the vision on who are going to build this project together. Here's my point. Surround yourself this year with the right kind of people. The network that will support you when you need support and that you can support when they need support. You need the right kind of people around you. My dad used to tell me that all the time. And I find out it's a scriptural principle. The right kind of people. Tell them. Pass on the vision to them. Beware of uh, isolation. Beware of the kind of mentality that says, I've been burned by people. I can't trust people. And so I'm going to remove myself from really opening myself up to people. After all, all I need is God. Just me and God. That's not how God designed you. God designed you to need people. And God designed people to need you. And he gave it a name. He called it the body of Christ. The body of Christ is figurative of a human body that depends on every other part for nourishment and growth. You need everybody. You need a network. There's a book that Donald Joy wrote, and in one of the chapters, I think the beginning chapter, he called it, Who is Holding Your Trampoline? It's the name of the chapter. Who's holding your trampoline? And he pictured life as a trampoline ride. So, you know, you go up and down, and sometimes you bounce pretty high. You always come down. When you come down, you better have somebody holding that trampoline. He pictured a four-sided trampoline and people holding it on four sides. And he said, you know, you need about 20 to 30 people in your life that are close as a network for accountability, for security, for sharing, for growth. Now, who's holding your trampoline? You cannot make it well this year if you are isolating yourself and refusing to share yourself and your vision with other people. And so he shares it. And notice how he shares it. You see the distress we are in. Uh, Jerusalem lies waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come let us build that the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. It's all plural. We, us, we. Now, keep in mind, Nehemiah wasn't really part of the problem per se. He was back in Persia. He had heard that Jerusalem needed help. He goes, and as soon as he gets there, he says, you know, we got a problem. we got to build. we got to do something. This is affecting us. How would it have come off if he would have said, you guys get to work. I'm going to be up here in uh, the Jewish quarter of my office and uh, you know, call me if there's a problem, but don't call me. He said we. He put himself in the problem. He made it plural. We, us, let's build the walls. This is especially important to you if the walls of your personal relationship this year are breaking. Do you see holes in your relationships with your family, with your friends? There's big gaping holes in it. There's weeds growing. You feel estranged from them. The the bricks are falling out a little bit. It could be that you need to become part of what you perceive as the problem. You know, I see this happening all the time in the walls of marriages. And it's time tonight 
the beginning of this new year to change a few things. Often husbands and wives use the if-only syndrome. You know, I could do this if only she would. You could fill in the blank. Well, the reason I'm this way is because he's that way. And if only he'd, then I'd. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm part of the problem. Let's do it together. Blame squelches motivation in a relationship. And determination. It's like, why bother? So fill in the gaps, the walls. Put yourself in it. He did. Share it. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to do this good work. The third step, build the vision. You know, if you've got the vision from God, you've prayed about it, you've contemplated, you've seen, you know, your plan of attack, so to speak. If you've got godly people around you to help you, to be accountable to, you're on your way. Man, you're on your way. Now go do it. Now walk in it. Do the work. You know, they all rallied and said, let's go for it. And then in the very next chapter, you find these words. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built, and next to them, and you find that phrase throughout the whole chapter, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. They all did some part of the wall. They were all next to each other, and they built the vision. Now, as soon as they did this, as soon as they said, by God's grace, this is a God-given vision, God-given strategy, shared with the right people, as soon as they started doing it, they had an obstacle. It says, Now when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And so I answered them and said, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. You're at the brink of a new year. And so many here, I know, are going to do exactly what Nehemiah did. They're going to go home and they're going to get before God. They're going to pray. They're going to get a vision. They're going to ask people to be accountable to and and network together with the right kind of people. You know what's going to happen as soon as you do that? There's going to come some obstacle. You've heard of Murphy's Law, right? If anything bad can happen, it will happen, something like that. There's a thing called Lucifer's Law as well, which basically says if you make a stand for God and say, I'm going to serve God with all of my heart, then hell won't give you a standing ovation for doing that. They're not going to say, well, you know what? We'll get behind you. We'll make sure you grow in Christ and overcome us and... You are now a target. When was the time in David's life when he had spears thrown at him? It was when he was anointed by the prophet. You're the one that's going to take over for Saul. It wasn't until that time that he had all of those spears thrown at him and he was hassled and dogged. When you step into the arena of aggressive service for Jesus Christ, you're a target. You say, well, you shouldn't have told me that. Yes, I should have. Because it's going to happen. 
So what do you do? Do you just say, well, then I don't want to do it? No, you, like Nehemiah, say, hey, God put this in our heart. This is God's work, and God will prosper us. God will take care of the enemies. God will take care of all of the problems. We're still going to work. He was determined to do it, and he went after it with all of his heart. Somebody once said, if you have a vision and no task, you're a dreamer. If you have just a task to do without a real vision, then you are a drudge. But if you have both a vision and a task in that vision, a plan, then you're on the brink of victory. Well, tonight you're on the brink of victory because God is willing to speak to your hearts and place within your heart His plan for your life if you'd open yourself up. That's what Romans 12 is all about. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, perfect, acceptable will of God. Same truths we just read in Nehemiah. Place yourself before God. And as God speaks something to your heart this year and as you get the right kind of people around you and as you daily contemplate and meditate on His Word in prayer, take those steps every day and see what kind of territory you conquer. I know it'll work because I watch it happen in your lives already year after year after year. Some of you won't be here next year. Some of you will be out on the mission field. You'll be out starting a new church somewhere. You'll be a part of a growing work of God in another place because you'll get a vision and you'll run with it. Or new ministries will be developed in this church, in this body, because God put a plan in your heart and you got the right people around you and you went for it. And we'll all work next to each other and the walls will be built. But they have to be built in our personal lives as well. They have to be built in our relationship with God. And perhaps in surveying your life tonight, if you were to stand and look at all the walls of your life and the gates, how it's built, what it looks like, you would say, well, you know, there's this huge hole right in the center, right as you enter, big empty spot. And that could represent the fact that your relationship with God is either non-existent or very, very dim. Now's the time to fix that. That's what this is all about. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man from all sin. You may have been the one to throw the cannonball in your own wall this year. You may have blown a big hole in it by something you've done or some pattern or habit of your life. All of that is forgivable now. All of that is rectifiable tonight. But it takes a turning it takes a turning to God wholeheartedly. When Nehemiah heard, the first thing he did was weep and pray over the sins of his people, and he asked God to forgive them. That's in chapter 1. If God is speaking to your heart tonight about an area of your life, a piece of the wall, one of your gates, now's the time to ask his forgiveness. Let's just have a moment of prayer silently, quietly, not even corporately, a time of evaluating the walls and the gates of your life. Just before the Lord right now, think about the year. Think about your patterns, your habits, uh, your style, your relationships, your commitments, or your lack of them. Uh, look it all over. Bring it before the Lord. Talk to Him about it. 
for just a few moments. Now, Lord, we bring it all to you. What we have seen and thought of in the last few moments, you have seen long before we ever knew or saw. And like Nehemiah, who viewed the walls at night, he didn't stay there. He went from there after surveying, after assessing the need, after being assured that it was your plan. And he went on, Lord, to build in victory with a task and with vision. Lord, there are 365 days ahead, if that is your will. And if it is, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and give us your vision your direction, your plan. We are open. We have certain plans. We have certain things marked in our calendar, but we give you the permission to just do whatever needs to be done in our lives to bring us into closer relationship with you and surrender. Father, for those tonight who have gathered, who feel guilty about their past, Lord, I pray that the truth of the gospel as exemplified in communion would lift their spirits If they mourn over their sin, that's wonderful. And if it is sin, that's exactly why it's forgivable. So, Lord, I pray that upon confession and turning, we would now experience life-giving forgiveness, all of us. Lord, now for those who have gathered, and there's been a huge gaping crevasse in their lives, a big hole where a relationship with you ought to be, I pray, Lord, that that would be filled by the invitation to make Jesus Christ the Lord, the Savior. If you've gathered here tonight and you've been brought by a friend, you've been invited, and you are sitting here with us before the elements are passed out and you recognize, I really don't know if I know God personally. I can't really say for sure that I am one of his children. I couldn't say in all absolute certainty that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. But I want to know for sure. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. And I'd like you to 
receive Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight. I'd like you to indicate your desire to do that by raising your hand. Just raise it up while we're sitting here in this quiet state for a few moments. Raise your hand up. And by raising it, you're saying, would you please pray for me tonight? I want to know that my guilt's taken away, that my sins are forgiven, that I have a relationship with God. If you're ready to do that tonight, just raise your hand up. Don't be afraid. Just God bless you and you right over here. Anyone else? Raise it up so I can see it. Over here to my right and toward the back to my right. Anybody else? Right over here. couple in the middle. Several up in the balcony. Off to the right, my right, in the back, in the back again. Anybody else? A couple more on the back. Lord, for all of these, we, as your people, pray right now that as Jesus Christ comes into each life, each heart that has indicated that need by raising their hand, as you do that, Lord, I pray that you would bring assurance, confidence, that the past is gone. The slate is indeed clean, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that as you are made Lord, as you are made Savior, that they become your children, that they turn from the past, from sin, and turn to you. Lord, wrap them in your arms. Wherever you are seated tonight, if you raised your hand, Right now, would you just make Jesus the king of your heart, of your life? Talk to him right now. Say to him, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me personally. And I give you my life, all of it. I give you the past. I give you the present. I give you all of my future. I pray that you would wash my sins away, make me your child, give me the hope of heaven as you write my name in your book of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is that the thing that God began in Lifeline would continue. When I came on staff, I asked God to birth in my heart a vision for the youth ministry, a reason why it existed. And I felt God really impressed from my heart to facilitate a ministry where young kids would be mobilized to participate in genuine ministry, real ministry. And so my desire is a lifeline would continue to be not only a place where young people are challenged to a radical faith through the teaching of the word, but a place where they can actually live that faith out, where they can participate and get involved in genuine stuff. A lot of people have asked me, how is all those things getting done in lifeline? And um, it's with excitement that I tell them it's God using young people. So let me just leave you with a verse. Job 42.5 says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And so my prayer and desire, my heart for this ministry, is that Lifeline would continue to be a place where kids not only hear about God, but where they see and experience Him through involvement and participation.
Before we go on, I would just ask everyone to um, remain seated. The service isn't over yet. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, I went to church and it was almost like, well, communion's over. My obligation is over. I'm out of here. And uh, church isn't that way. And it's a New Year's Eve service and we're here to rejoice, but we're here for the whole service. So I'd ask your cooperation and your uh, kindness to those who are speaking not to say, okay, well, these guys are speaking, I'm up and I'm out of here. It's almost that kind of a message. I'd appreciate um, listening to what God would be speaking through them. Thank you. My name is Al Pittman, and um, I'm involved in a worship ministry here, home fellowships and other different ministries. Um, And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking or standing back there thinking about what to say tonight. Of course, I've been thinking about it all day, but... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's um, another year has gone, and uh, Skip was sharing uh, through the word that uh, it's it's uh, it goes so quickly, and um, we only have so many years left. And I, I think sometimes, what type of legacy do I want to leave behind for my my sons, uh, my daughter, my my wife, uh, my grandchildren, or whatever? And I think of uh, the word of God in Jeremiah chapter nine, verses twenty-four and twenty-five. God says. Do not glory in your wisdom or glory in your strength or glory in your, your riches. But if you're going to glory, and you know, we all like to glory. <laughs> you know, we like to glory in something. You know, I'm, my dog's bigger than your dog or something. I don't, you know, so we, we want to glory. Uh, he said, but if you're going to glory in something, glory in this, that you understand and know me. You want to get stoked about something in 1997, get stoked about that about knowing the Lord. But he goes on to say that, for I am the Lord, and I am exercising, he says, righteousness and judgment and loving kindness throughout the earth. And I think, man, God is always exercising. I'm not always exercising. (laughs) But God works out. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always on the move. He's always working through our life and and through uh, uh, this church and, and through your lives. And because he's he never sleeps, he never slumbers, because he is the Lord. So if you glory in anything, glory in that you understand and that you know him. I'm out of order on the list here. That's all right. My name's Chet Evans, for those of you that are brand new to the church. And the rest of you know who I am. You know, I was thinking about... In my subject, and uh, I thought about the changes that are going on in my own life, and um, I think there's a very natural tendency for us as Christians to see uh, the pastors as being the most valuable parts of the church. I think there's a tendency to do that, and, and you know, all of us guys are in the ministry. We get paid to do it. And, uh, and I think that that's how a lot of times the church sees that, is that that's real ministry, you know, when you get paid to do it. But uh, as I was reading this passage, I felt like I should share about it. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And it's a familiar passage to most of you. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, or pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I am very keenly aware, thinking about it a lot, how vital you are. You really are God's wisdom in what he's planning to do on the earth. And as 
what I see in the scriptures is our role as pastors has been to equip you for the work of the ministry. And, and you know, I see it as being God's wisdom, his great wisdom and his really the greatest source of his power is not in individual men that are, gift, that are gifted and maybe with multifaceted gifts, but it's you. It's millions of people around the world working an ordinary job, serving God right where they are and having an impact in individual lives. And that is God's wisdom, and that's the power of his body. Because as it says in 1 Corinthians, we can't all be mouths. You know, if, the, if there was a body of mouths or a body of eyeballs, what kind of weird structure would it be? What could it do? It couldn't do anything. And he didn't, he didn't use the, the term body accidentally. It's, it's, a, it's an organism made up of people with different kinds of callings, and different kinds of callings doesn't just mean full-time ministry like what we do. Different kinds of callings in what he's called you to do. And that may be job, it may be going to school, it may be a housewife. But you know, you are the strength of the church. And in God is moving worldwide because of you and because of what you do. And I just wanted to encourage you in that, not to see your life and your work and what you do as somehow being not that great, not that powerful. God can use you in a radical way right where you are doing the work that you do, going to school, being a housewife, to, to have impact on people that we may never come in contact with, guys that are on full-time staff. So I just wanted to leave you with that encouragement for the year. Thank you. Can you hear me there? Can you see me? <laughs> My name is Carlos Casco, and I'm doing the Spanish ministry. We have services on Wednesday nights at 7.30. And also I do the translations for uh, Pastor Skip, uh, simultaneous translation into Spanish. Um, you know, God is so good. After he saved us, he wants us to grow. He wants us to walk in the sanctification road. And he wants us to have a comfor- comfortable uh, ride. Um, and he has put, he has built in, in nature, a lot of features that we can learn from. I like to observe nature, and I learn a lot from it. You know, horses are very uh, excited, are very uh, nervous, and you cannot trust horses that much. Donkeys are dumb. <laughs> and mules, I like to learn. I learned something from mules one time. We were walking to one of the villages in the mountains in Mexico, and uh, my wife was riding a horse. And every time the horse had to go through an obstacle, uh, it would just jump get very nervous, and I got nervous. Then our daughter, Yolianette, she was riding a donkey, and the donkey will get to the obstacle, to the difficult part, and will stand there, and Yoli had to kick him and hit him to go. And I was riding a mule. And, you know, I noticed that the mule got to the difficult part, stand there, look around, look for the easiest area to go through across, and then he stand the right leg or the left leg, and touch with the hoof the other side. And when he noticed that was sure that everything was fine, then go over very gently. I learned from that because God wants us to be careful in our walk. He wants us to be saints. He wants us to be pure. God bless you. Hello, my name is Danny Schumann, and I'm working as the junior high youth director 
And first of all, I just want to say it's a privilege to serve uh, many of your sons and daughters. Um, the goal that I'd really like to see the Lord uh, do through the youth group this year is see them mature in their faith where they become um, men and women of God who are salt and light in their neighborhoods and in their schools and uh, in their families. And um, what I'm really looking forward to is this month we're going to begin a study in a workbook called Experiencing God. And in this workbook, these um, um, young people are going to be learning how to recognize and do the will of God, how to hear God's voice, how he speaks to them through Scripture and through his Holy Spirit and through other believers. Also, we're looking forward to, Lord willing, going to uh, Mexico this summer and uh, giving them the opportunity to serve. And I think it's there that we really see and catch the vision of what it means to be a child of God as we get to share our faith. So, Lord willing, we'll be going to Mexico. Um, finally, also, I also help out with the uh, traffic control ministry and the prayer watch ministry. And these are truly um, the people who come out there serve with um, pure hearts. And um, they've exemplified what Jesus said in Mark 10:43: whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And um, they really do a great job. I not just if you're here tonight, I want to thank you all. And also let you know, if God uh, puts it on your heart, we do need more people to serve out there. And we would love to have you. Thank you. I'm C.B. Blankenship. I guess you might call me a pastor at large. I'm also an elder. Some of you might have already figured that out. Uh, I've been on staff a little while, but uh, I've been just ordained very recently. And what I want to share with you very briefly tonight is a small portion of a letter. A few weeks ago when we were doing the shoebox thing, you remember, for Christmas, at home I needed a shoebox or a box about the size of a shoebox, and I'm looking all over And in the top of B.B.'s closet, there's this box. I said, that's the perfect size, so I'll just take it and use it. But when I pulled it off the shelf, there was something in it, and B.B. was nearby, and I says, well, B.B., what's in this box? I need it. And she said, get your hands off of that box. It don't belong to you. It's personal. I took that as an invitation to check it out. (laughs) So (laughs) I opened the box, and uh, there was some letters Envelopes addressed to B.B. Fifty years old, these letters were. And, matter of fact, I took a look at a couple of them. There's pretty good stuff in there, too. But that's not the letter that I want to share with you. Uh, The the letter that I want to share with you is a letter that I received from uh, the Apostle Paul. Many of you received the same letter. Part of it says, uh, don't let the world look down on your youth. Now, you've got to remember, I got this letter a long time ago. Some of you have read that letter, and the letter has some very good advice. He said, I want you to be an example wherever you go, whatever you do, in your word, in your conduct, in your speech, in your faith, in your love, in your charity. And all those things, I want you to be an example. And after hearing Skip tonight, I made up my mind that I'm going to be an example. I'm going to be an example to you guys. I'm going to lay my life before you, and I want to someday be able to say like Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's another letter from Paul that says that we have become the epistle of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you that don't know what that epistle means, that simply means that you're a letter, but not just a letter. He says, an open letter seen and read by all men. So my suggestion to you, instead of making uh, resolutions for the year, that you resolve or commit yourself to do exactly what God wants you to do. 
Be that example. Be that witness. Be that ambassador. Be whatever it is that God has called you to be. And more than anything else, his purpose for your life is to be like his son, Jesus. And that's my hope for you, too, that somehow during this coming year that you will become a little bit more like Jesus Christ. God bless you, and have a happy new year. Uh, My name is Bill Welsh, and I work with the School of Ministry and Missions. And uh, CB is an example. And um, all these guys and all of us that work with him can say that. And when I get to be 95, I want to be just like him. (laughs) Not that he's not. He's not 95. But when I get to be 95, I want to be like him. Um, I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of going on the delivery team for um, Operation Christmas Child to to Lebanon, to Beirut. And I've been in places that are um, obviously more there's more poverty, but I've never seen so much devastation and, and destruction in one place. And uh, as I was standing in lines so often, there were lines in front of us, and we were standing there handing boxes to kids that you had, you had packed those boxes. You and your children had put toys and candy and clothes into those. And it just hit me that I was giving away things that, that I had, I had no, um, nothing, no involvement in putting them together. I, was just, I had the privilege of taking a box a blessing, a gift, and putting it in somebody's hand, uh, just a relay man for you. And um, Jesus had, at, at one point in Matthew chapter 10, it records that he had given his disciples power um, to go out and to, to preach the gospel and to cast out demons and make people well that were sick and raise the dead. He gave them power. Then he sends them out and he says, now go and do that. And at the end of it, he says, what you freely have received, freely give. And that's what I was doing in, in Lebanon. I was giving away gifts that you actually had given and I was just a dispenser and uh, and I really feel like the Lord spoke to my heart and said Bill this is what I want you to do for the rest of your life just give away what I've given you just take whatever I've given you and give it away to other people whether it's you know words of truth or deeds of, of ministry and service and I want to encourage you too to, um, to take whatever God has, has put into you whatever he's invested in your life and trust that he'll arrange divine encounters with people that need exactly what you have and and be willing to give that. Um, I had an incident when we had just arrived in Beirut and we were unloading our van. This little boy came up and he was um, uh, mentally handicapped, very, very poor, poorest uh, person I saw the whole time we were there. And he came up and grabbed my arm. He didn't say anything, but he just moaned. He just went, uh, and he started patting my pocket for change and he went after my belt bag and little tag that I was wearing, and I just said I didn't have anything to give him. And and as he was holding onto my arm, he uh, I, I was grabbing a bag and, and I sort of patted his shoulder with uh, my free hand, and he bit me on the arm. He just reached over and and clamped down on my arm, and I reacted and and I threw him. No, I didn't throw him down. I <laughs> I, rea- I just pushed him away. And um, that night when I was trying to go to sleep. Um, you know, when I say the Lord spoke to me, it's impressions. It was like, what did you come to Beirut for? And I just, in, in my heart, I'm thinking, well, I came here to give out gifts to kids. Don't have anything. And it was almost, <laughs> you know, the voice you hear from your, uh, your your leaders, your elders, or whoever's in authority over you sometimes. It was just one of those, oh, so that's why you came. And I realized that I'd missed an opportunity. And that we had a plane load of boxes 
and I had missed an opportunity to bless a little boy because he wasn't in one of the official lines. And, you know, watch out for those unofficial encounters that God is going to set up for you this year and take the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the light and the salt that you are, and spread it around. It's going to be a blast to serve with you this year here. God bless you. One of the great mysteries of the Old Testament is how the children of Israel, given so great an opportunity, could accomplish so very little. I mean, think about it. Here they were given immunity from their enemies, protection from the elements. They had food and water wherever they went. And they were given miracles of epic proportions. Yet they managed to become their own worst enemies. What a mystery. It's a mystery only from human perspective, though. Because from God's point of view, in Deuteronomy 8, it tells us that he accomplished in the 40 years the testing, the trying, the proving of the hearts of his children to see whether they would obey his commandments and ultimately to do good on their behalf. So if we have a resolve for the the coming year, this may not sound too spiritual, but perhaps we should resolve to stop shooting ourselves in the foot spiritually, uh, to stop being our own worst enemies, to make decisions that reflect a willingness to cooperate with God because he seeks to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or, or hope or even think. And let's choose wisely and then stand back and, and see what God will do. I want to uh, have you hear from one final person, and um, that is the woman that I'm called to take care of. That is my bride, my wife, Lenya. I didn't want to come up with the boys' club because I'm really not a pastor. So um, I'm the pastor's wife. I wash his clothes and uh, make his bed and stuff like that. But I also am a director of the women's ministry. So the thought that went through my mind, and I'm sure a lot of you have been battling the malls because for Christmas you got something under your tree that you weren't expecting. As a matter of fact, you were dreading. <laughs> One year I got a neon orange leotard, if you can just picture that for a minute. And so when I tried to take it to Dillard's, they didn't want it back. And when I tried to take it to Macy's, they wanted to give me 75% less than whoever had purchased it had purchased it for. And I started thinking, you know, that God has an amazing exchange plan. In Isaiah, it says he gives us the oil of joy for mourning and beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so I want to encourage you in the new year to go to God and exchange your yuck for his goodies. Because he truly does have a treasure house full of things that he wants you to try on and to wear. And the reason he does is he says that we might be trees of righteousness, the planting of our Lord. You are his garden. And people want to come by and smell and check out the goods. And you represent him, as has been said here this evening. So the Lord wants to look in his garden and see his trees of righteousness. And then finally it says that he might be glorified. And so I pray that you will allow God to glorify himself in you by letting him take away the things that are so ugly in our lives and make them beautiful as only he can.
Let's all stand. See, that's where I get all my material, right there. She's anointed. We're going to have the worship band come up, and uh, we're going to sing a couple of joyful songs. Make a joyful noise. Are you ready? Good.